May the peace of our Lord be with you. I cannot speak for you, but today's gospel lesson throws me for a loop. When I first read this parable, I was in the midst of my high school days as Mrs. Goody Two-Shoes, and the unfairness of Jesus lifting up the dishonest manager just made me mad, like really, really mad. My theology has, of course, evolved and shifted, and my naivete has given way to the realism that sometimes people do what they have to do to survive, but I'm still a bit flummoxed by Jesus lifting up the dishonest manager as an example. I've read what seems like a million interpretations of the shrewd manager over the years, and particularly in the last week, and I'm not wholly satisfied with any of them. There are interpreters who see this parable as Jesus's way of lifting up creativity and its importance to the work of Christ. This argument goes that once the manager learns that he will be fired, he springs into action in a creative way. If the dishonest manager is that creative, how much more so should we, the children of light, be creative in bringing about the kingdom of God here on earth? There are interpreters who view this as lifting up the radical forgiveness of God, like in the parable of the prodigal son that comes directly before this in Luke's gospel. As Do Debbie Thomas says, would the story read differently if we assumed that the manager spent years risking his job and his employer's displeasure to ease the financial struggles of the workers he managed? And then there are interpreters who want us to take a step back and see this parable in the context of four others that Jesus tells. Two are the lost sheep and the lost coin of last week's gospel lesson from the lectionary, which are followed by the parable of the prodigal son, which the lectionary skips for now. And then there is today's parable that begins with a rich man and a second parable that begins the same way. When we take these five parables together, as they come to us in Luke, and combine that with the knowledge that rich landlords amassed wealth by exploiting poor farmers and used the managers to do their collecting, we can see that this parable, along with the others in Jesus' teaching, it is Jesus teaching us about valuing people. We value the one and the 99. We value the son who squandered everything and the brother who was unhappy about it. We value the manager and the people whose debt he forgave. The dishonest manager is, as Brian McLaren says, somebody who sees through the injustice of the economic system and decides to switch sides and work for the poor. 
Jesus concludes the parable with, we cannot serve God and wealth, which reminds us that we must value people over money. While all these interpretations provide truth for us to chew on, they also provide more questions for us to ponder. Is creativity more important than honesty? Is forgiveness more important than integrity? Can we frame the dishonest manager's deeds as fighting injustice when he was also trying to save his own neck? The answer to all of these questions may be yes. And they are in questions, they are questions that invite more questions. They invite questions from what was supposed to be the answer. Jesus often answered questions with more questions. According to one statistic, Jesus asks 307 questions in the scripture and only directly answers eight. I grew up singing, Jesus is the answer, but often Jesus doesn't give an answer. He tells a story. I sat in a meeting this week with some members of our family of faith, wise, intelligent, thoughtful people that really could describe any room I sit in with Northminsterites. But we sat down to discuss some guidelines for specific situations that all of us have been in at one time or another. We had all the information and experience in the room that one could expect to have. We named a lot of problems, but very few answers. We walked away from the meeting with more questions, not without hope, but without answers. I was at a wedding yesterday, a place Jesus sometimes found himself, it was out of town, and at the reception, I was invited into a conversation about the water crisis in Jackson. It went something like, oh, are you from Jackson? Are you okay? Do y'all need water? And having barely said three words, I didn't even answer the questions fully, I was then given all the answers for how the water crisis should be solved. I walked away from the conversation with, a lot of questions, not without hope, but without answers. When the problems are big, we want to solve them immediately. When we are hurting or people we love are hurting, we want to fix it. When we are in liminal space, that in-between time when one thing has ended and another has not yet begun, we want to know what the next thing will look like. When the space between the question and the answer lengthens, we get frustrated. We are not without hope, but sometimes we are without answers. By their nature, parables invite questions. They aren't meant to have one meaning. John Claypool was fond of saying, God's other name is surprise. Jesus's parables could also be called surprise stories. Sometimes they invite surprise. 
Sometimes they invite frustration or action. Sometimes they invite sorrow or grace. Sometimes they invite repentance or joy. Sometimes they invite many things at once. Sometimes they invite us to explore our questions further. And sometimes they invite us to make room for mystery. Susan Beaumont says, only after surrender can we be led by our own emerging future. Sometimes parables invite us to surrender. We surrender to not having the answer. Without answers, but not without hope. A few weeks ago, I was watching a video one we might use for adult studies one day, and the person quoted Julian of Norwich. You've probably heard, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. That quote often comes to me when I find myself with more questions than answers. It often comes alongside the idea that grace always bats last, from Anne Lamott, and that from God's abundance, we have all received grace upon grace from John's gospel. But all the times I've seen it before, in writing, in paintings, in plaques at the craft store, I'm pretty sure I've only ever seen half of the quote. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. But in this video, I heard the rest. Julian of Norwich writes in Revelation of Divine Love, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. For there is a force of love moving through this universe that holds us and will never let us go. When the questions don't seem to have answers, and we go seeking them from our Lord, and the response is more questions, we must remember that even though we are without answers, we are not without hope. Not having answers to all our questions doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything. Sometimes we have to take the next step, even when we don't know what's ahead. Sometimes it's our calling to get involved, even we, when we are unsure of how our involvement might end. Sometimes we have to figure out what we value most and respond from that value. Sometimes we have to listen for the Spirit to guide us through what we do not get to go around. By telling stories, Jesus invites us to move at a story's pace. Sometimes that means we run with Paul, the race set out before us. But sometimes it means we walk with the bent over woman until we can touch just the hem of Jesus's robe. The lesson from today's parable Maybe that creativity is important in the work of the kingdom. It may be about the radical forgiveness of God. It may be about God calling us to respond to injustice 
And it may be about sitting with the questions, without answers, but not without hope. Amen.